welcome. You're listening to the Early AI Podcast. Here we talk with thought leaders and practitioners on what's possible and practical with AI in the enterprise as we move from the current state to a future of cognitive assistance and embedded AI in all aspects of our personal and professional lives. Thanks so much for listening. If this is your first time, we invite you to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, here are your hosts, Seth Early and Chris Featherstone. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Seth Early. And I'm Chris Featherstone. Chris, how is the weather there? Is it uh, getting very wintry? Yeah, you know what? We've got about a foot of snow on the ground. And wow. yeah, and we're in the, you know, in the it hovers between the, um, you know, the high 20s and the teens. So, but it's, but it's dry, right? Like they said, yeah. dry. Yeah. It's not that cold. Great. So uh, what part of the state are you in again? I'm in the north, uh, northwest part of Montana. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's great. So great winter, winter sports ahead for you. Well, let's yep. go ahead and jump into our podcast today. Um, our next guest is passionate about creating human machine symbiosis. She envisions a world where everyone will have his or her own AI companion, a companion who can truly understand us as unique individuals and help us in our personal and professional life. To that end, she built a company that powers chatbots using human-centered AI. Please welcome co-founder and CEO of Juji, Michelle Zhao. Thank you, Thas, for having me. And thank you, Chris. Um, yep. Being here as well. Mm-hmm. Appreciate the time. So, um, Michelle, uh, give us a sense of, of your background. How, uh, how did you get into the space? And uh, tell us a little bit about that path. <laughs> And I'm glad you asked about that, Seth. Actually, I would say I stumbled into the computer science by accident hmm. because I both my both of my parents are phys- were physicians. Okay. So um, I didn't want to become a physician, but I really want to become a biologist. That was the However, time near and dear to my heart. That's what I started out in as my undergrad. I want really to change them. Change the humankind, right? Advance mm. humanity by making men pregnant so they can mm. share the pain, <laughs> share the responsibilities of human reproduction with us women. <laughs> so, um, however, I wasn't accepted by, by the uh, biology department. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, they said you have to pick the second major. Otherwise, you may not be accepted by the university. So I say, hey, which one would it be? So it's almost like a through the dark, the point, because the, well, I have, I had never seen a computer, touched the computer before, before I decided to go to computer science. I wasn't really fond of a computer science at the very beginning because, uh, you know, in computer science, you have to learn the binary code, right? Mm-hmm. That's only computers understand. You have to understand the programming language. I remember... At the beginning, many people struggled to understand why X equals to X plus one, right? <laughs> so uh, now, of course, uh, you after you become a programmer, you know why. And then I really wasn't really uh, fond of computer science until I came to the U.S. Uh, I attended a Michigan State University and uh, to study towards my master's degree. So there were two professors that really have changed and helped, I guess, uh, changed my perspectives about computer science. So one professor, Professor Nainan Lee, 
So he gave me an opportunity to work on building a graphical user interfaces for power management, for network management, power management. That really gave me a sense of a gratification because you build a, a graphical user interfaces, people can use it, and to managing something could potentially have a real world impact. Then the second professor, who actually uh, uh, is a late professor, Carl Page, and uh, he actually taught our AI class. He was very passionate, right? So you, you probably many people already knew. Oh, uh, Carl is a father of Larry Page, who is a founder of Google. And but of course, uh, then we didn't know anything about Google. Google didn't exist. And then, but he was very passionate about AI and told us in classroom a lot of stories about AI. Then I said, that's really hmm. kind of magical, right? Hmm. Then I did two projects under him. I said, you know, I really want to do something in, at the intersection of AI and the user interface design. So hmm. like you can see what's why I call the human-centered AI. It's really at the intersection of uh, human-computer interaction and artificial intelligence. So mm -hmm. then I decided to pursue a PhD in this particular area. So um, obviously, my uh, uh, thanks to my advisor, who really gave me lots of freedom to do research, to explore. So my thesis was working on creating a, a really the AI data storyteller, mm -hmm. which means it is given a set of data, given a mm -hmm. task of the user, and given the user's visual preferences. So for example, some mm -hmm. users want to see Overview first, then detail, and other users prefer to see the detail example right. first, and then overview. So mm. the, the program will automatically generate a um, data story. It's a basically kind of like in, which is, which consists of a series of animated data visualization. Interesting. So we we'll tell the story. Yeah. So for example, uh, the system part of the system actually being used by the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital to brief the nurses about the patient status. So for example, we'll tell you the nurse about uh, what happened during the surgery and what kind of a treatment this particular patient is under and what's the treatment should be given after the, let's say after the patient uh, uh, was came uh, after the surgery, right? So it's kind of a very interesting hmm. telling the story uh, to the nurses so nurses can take actions afterwards. So you're getting the data to communicate in a way that is more user-friendly and that tells uh, a, a story around whatever it is that's of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, people use that term in, in other ways, the data storytelling, talking about data and using data to tell a story. So um, so that's very interesting. And uh, how far along did that go? And is it uh, is it still uh, in, in use and... Uh, does it still kind of, and, and and does it align with how people talk about data storytelling? Right, like there's a guy who we had on the prior podcast, and they they call him the the you know the what is he the data whisperer or something? But he's he's into data the storytelling right. or stories about data rather than the data telling a story. It's so. a, uh it's basically the data tells the story. In our case, it is because uh, think about this way because I knew that's your analogy engineering person, my expert. And you can just imagine that you have a pile of data, right? But in this data, there are some of the golden nuggets and there are some of things you don't, you don't need it to know. It's basically, it's just, um, I would say this potentially could be noise, right? So how can you uh, pick out the golden nuggets and thread them together 
to show a very coherent and a meaningful summary to the people who are recipient side. It's very useful. Right. So um, I did uh, know that uh, that system was used uh, in a cardiac ICU by the nurses for a while. Whether it is used by now at the moment, I don't know about that. Right. So this is actually uh, connecting to my next uh, my stage of a career at IBM Watson. So after I graduated from Columbia, I joined IBM Watson Research Center. So then I said that, you know, the storyteller we had uh, for the Presbyterian Hospital caregivers, uh, it's not very interactive. Interactive meaning mm-hmm. is this. The story, the visual story is interactive. You can click on, you can look at the mm-hmm. detail, but not interactive in a way the nurses can say, oh, hold on. I don't want to see this data. I want to see a different set of data. Or can you compare this set of data with the yesterday state, mm-hmm. right? I couldn't do that. So at IBM, my first really significant project is to make the interactive conversational data storyteller. So in that case, ah, users right. can interject right. and can change the trajectory it of the story. the story. Shape the story, yeah. Exactly, okay. can That's shape the story. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Based on the context, right? So right. I remember we used, the, uh, we used the data set, which means publicly available data set. We can talk about it is... The person was asking, show me the houses in Westchester County. I mean, in your case, show me the house, houses in the Boston metropolitan area. And then you would actually go to the database and trying to find the information that's important, relevant to the users. And then to say, hey, here are the houses. And then actually bin in it and make this data summary. And then it's it was in context. And the person can use natural language to say this. Mm-hmm. Then tell me about the school. Oh, maybe doing a narrow down, right? Just those houses under 500K uh, built after 1970s. Yeah. So you so can, you're, you're not talking about Boston now. Yeah, right. So basically. <laughs> the prices <laughs> right. are so high. But anyway, yeah. um, no, those are great. Those are great points. And so that started to get into natural language understanding. Like understand, yeah. Story. And then, you know, there's this field uh, that we talked about, psycholinguistics. What is that really? Tell us. Very, very, I I, I love your segue. So in a conversational storyteller, in data exploration, we try to understand the user's preferences because in my field of human-centered AI, one of the very, I would say, um, very important study area is user modeling. How can you understand users so you can make computer systems adapt to users, right? Not another way around it. So we have, I'm, my first really 10 year, maybe 15 years of research is working on understanding users in a task context. So what their tasks are, what they're looking for, what their visual preferences, what their maybe like their verbal preferences, but not on their psychological characteristics. So hmm. for example, is this person a very open-minded person? Or is this person a very careful, cautious person? Mm-hmm. Or is this person very social? Or is this person mm-hmm. very independent? Very different. Think about it. If you know those characteristics, your information presentation, your interaction with this person might be completely different, right? So then I started another project called the System U at the time, then morphed into the Watson Personality Insights later on oh. in the commercial world. It's trying to use users' communication text to mm. infer people's ah. personality. 
And is that the computational psychology? psychology when I see the assessments, the tests that say things like, do you like to eat ice cream or ride a bicycle? It sounds, you know, they, they're weird questions, but they end up with an assessment that really describes your personality. So mm-hmm. this is inferring some of that from the interactions. Okay. From tell the interaction, from yeah. especially textual communication interaction, right? So right. Uh, this, is, uh, this is like your question earlier. This is a, uh, Actually, it's a line of the research behind us called the psycholinguistics. Mm. So the psychologists, uh, linguists have found out that uh, even as long as probably back to Darwin time, right? So they found out that is uh, how people express themselves uh, highly related to their personality. So for example, people who are very, extro- were very social and extroverted, they often probably use this pronouns like a, a plural pronouns, like a we, right? Versus the person who are much more, they say, keep them to themselves. They're maybe much more likely to refer to I, right? So in this case, it is that's kind of like a foundational theory. But of course, in the past, people have been doing this one by hand, which means experts looking at your writing, looking at your one, trying to figure out who you are, right? Like a psychologist. And personas. Yeah, personas, right. How so they speak my to mental models, right? Mod, right. So, one of my, I would say, I would attribute this really to my co-founder, who is a psychologist, right? I'm not a psychologist, so he's hmm. a psychologist and a computer scientist. So he said it is, you know, the traditional psychometrics, like you mentioned earlier, is called the item-based of what I we call the test, right? To ask you to self-report, for example, or ask you to on a scale of one to five scale yourself. I love to work with somebody, or I love ballet, or I like to go, uh, I like to do outdoor events, something like that, right? But it's a self-reported that has some issues because uh, it's a very subjective. So I like ballet, your five and my five may mean completely different meaning. And also because of a social desirability biases, uh, if you are interviewing somebody for a job position, if this person probably will never ever to say, I want to work alone. Just thinking about it, that working environment, right? So in this case, my my co-founder was really brilliant to say this. Why, you know, using a modern psychometric theory, maybe we can extract evidence from the people's just free text writing and they're using this what's so-called item-based theory and they automatically infer people's uh, psychographic characteristics, right? Like, for example, their passions, their interests, uh, how they handle life's challenges. So that's uh, so that basically the key of the art of it is how do you identify those evidence and what would could be used as evidence to infer those uh, psychographic uh, uh, characteristics. So let me ask you a quick question, Michelle, because it's it's interesting, you know, centered around. I actually did psychology as well, applied psychology. I'm assuming that a lot of the work that you did on Watson, then translated over into Juji that you're working on now, right? We'll get to that. But, you know, in terms of a lot of these, the psychometric matrices that you guys captured, what did it look like in terms of, of accuracy? How did you, how did yeah. you actually get to yeah. testing accuracy? And then how did you, and then the second part of that question is, is bias, right? How did you actually, you know, work against bias in, in those situations? Great question. So first of all, I do want to address the the how, what type of type of work we transferred from Watson? What we so I would say it is uh, because uh, uh, in Watson in IBM I really thank IBM we have a lot of opportunities so I had 
accumulated lots of a domain knowledge in my head. So that's mm-hmm. definitely transferred. But the methodology we, we have been work, using right now in GG, we develop a, it's completely different from what we have done. Nothing like Watson from IBM. Nothing. Yeah, the, no, the reason. No, the reason is a, no. There's a reason. It's the reason. No. I think you probably will ask me about this one from entrepreneur point of view, because when you develop the approach or method or even algorithm at the companies at IBM, you care much less about the cost, right? But when yep. you come out and become your own, I have to pay everything from my bank pot, company's bank one. I have to be very careful about the cost. So that's really motivated us to find completely different approaches than what we had done at IBM, right? So then going back to Chris's question about the accuracy, in actually in the psychology world, they don't call it accuracy. They call it two metrics, which is absolutely important to evaluate what we have, the things like what we have developed called the psychometric measures, reliability and validity. So reliability means that uh, because it's measure, right? Any measurement, any instrument uh, you want to use, uh, it has to be measured by reliability. What it means it is uh, how stable it is, right? Like the measure measurement instrument at the weight at the scale, weight scale. If today I measure you for two hundred pounds, but tomorrow I say you weigh five hundred pounds, that's a very bad scale, right? Similarly. For psychometrics, reliability, which means that if you are measure this person by, let's say, uh, 500 words today, uh, it's with certain type of uh, personality. But tomorrow I measure you another 500 words, you come completely different personality. That's problematic, right? So but you have to have a certain, what I call it, uh, minimum number of evidences, right? So reliability, we found it is, at the earlier one, we found it is about a thousand words. This also contra- contrasts to IBM. IBM, I remember when we published it is, we have to say around the 3,000 words in order to derive a stable, stable in our case called the internal reliability. This is one of the very famous measure called the crown box alpha. So you have to measure it, have to above 0. 0.75, 0. 0.8, because humans known are inconsistent. So if you take the same test twice, then you may not even be 100% same, right? You would have a reliability around this 0.8, basically. That's one. So 0.8 is acceptable reliability. So well, IBM was 3,000 words. Our first version was 1,000 words. And now, well, I think one of the papers is going to be coming out by a third-party evaluator from a bunch of professors, psychology professors, maybe 500 words you will mm-hmm. actually reach that uh, acceptable reliability. Besides reliability, more importantly, it's the validity. So in, psych- in psychology, validity, which means it is, uh, can you use the inferred characteristics, whatever characteristics you, you think it is, right? Use that to predict people's real-world behavior. Because the, 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 really the crux of the research is about, uh, the work is about it is, uh, if you learn about the people's characteristics, you want to use that to help people. For example, help them be more healthy, help them find a career. But if you couldn't demonstrate it, your derived personality or whatever traits you, you claim doesn't actually predict a real world behavior or performance. It's useless, right? So right now, it's like self-declared expertise. Exactly, right, right. So you should be not very useful. So you... 
you know the that's why I asked, that's that's why I asked the bias question too. Exactly. Right? So the personality tested. Yeah. Yeah. The traditional personality test. Why people still using it? It's because it proves it has certain validity, right? Mm -hmm. So people do that when you say this. Like for example, you welcome to take a look at this. One of a very famous paper called "The Power of Personality." It shows that a certain personality can predict some people's lifespan was well, could be seven years average longer than other people. That's a very right. strong statement, yes. right? Yes. And some impactful. people are much more successful academically mm -hmm. and at, right. at a certain job roles. Right. So similarly, we want to do the same thing. I'm not going to reveal the, a lot of detail because this paper is coming out. But mm -hmm. the psychologists have to prove the incremental virility. Mm -hmm. Incremental virility is a very important concept, which mm -hmm. means it is... You have the both tests, right? Uh, traditional test and our test. And you found out that the, the inferred traits can be used to predict certain real-world user behavior, okay. which cannot be predicted or yeah. be less predicted by the yeah. traditional test. All right, let me, let me uh, pause one moment because um, we're about halfway through to our time. I wanted to remind our listeners we're talking with uh, Michelle Zhao, who is uh, an expert in digital assistance, and we're talking about a particular angle around computational uh, psychology. Chris, were you, you were yeah. going to ask another question? Yeah. I was. I was going to jump in. Um, you know, and and basically, you know, Michelle, I'd love to get a, a perspective to moving from, you know, the Watson, and I, I, I can definitely appreciate the notion of going from. Um, pure research to maybe it'll make it into products, but really your goal is just pure research to a startup, which is a dramatic contrast between the two, because, you know, you talked about yourself, use of proceeds. You don't have to care about, care about that. You know, when you're in the big, uh, the big engine, when, yeah. when you get into use of proceeds and this whole notion of, of wanting to, you know, wanting to actually build a product, how, how and why did you move from Watson and the comfort of research into a product company that's basically funded and started by you? But why go from a big company to a startup? What was the motivation? Great, great question. To be honest, I never thought about to work in a startup. I always think about I will be the research for life or maybe go to university and teaching or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, my, I would say it's really my co-founder kind of persuaded me to into it, right? For two reasons. First one, um, because of a success actually of a Watson personality insight at IBM, many people say, well, God, this is a really exciting research area. We publish a lot, right? But the way you see it is, uh, it's kind of like a pity if we just remaining into, I'm not talking about the particular method. It's about this whole area, right? To be able to, deeply understand people and uh, if nobody works on that further and uh, if we'll, this one just remains to be in research not to benefit especially when i'm talking about uh, general public i'm not talking about a big company who can pay ibm to use this product right i'm talking about anybody who just say hey you know i want a career advisor i couldn't afford it right now i remember in our area people pay twenty five thousand dollars for their kids to figure out what major to apply to college, right? That's one. So I want to really democratize the use of this very cutting edge type of technology. Number two, it is 
you really very have a hard time to do it as a very big company because there are lots of concerns about it. You don't have the, the really freedom, right? Because you want to move fast right. as well. Yeah, so that's why. Yeah. Right. So my co-founder, of course, uh, then I said it is, so we have to build it from scratch. Yes. Right. So that's why I would say, again, I kind of just say very naively to say, we didn't have even an idea what product will be, to be honest, Chris. We came out, we just said, we want to, to make sure that people can, uh, can actually benefit from the cutting edge technology like this. No idea what it is. So it took, took us a long time to figure out what to do. Nice. Well, now you're in the middle of it, <laughs> right? And um, and obviously, you know, from from Gigi, you know, it's really focused on. And correct me where I'm wrong, but like you said, you know, university digital assistants as well as um, you know HR, you know, type environments and things like that. And I'd I'd love to get a take because you know part of this, you know, um, having spent a lot of time building and uh, working on use cases for Amazon Lex, right? That's mm -hmm, one of my backgrounds mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is, you know, the notion of, you know, that a lot of the AI centered around, you know, the short form intent based frameworks is really driven by outcomes, right? An outcome basis. This was also some of the, some of the form, the forming of what my bias conversation or, you know, comment and question was all about is you put it into a university setting that university is looking for, obviously, you know, there's there's specific metrics that they're being gold on. And, you know, and let's say that I'm a student and I'm looking for, shoot, I don't know, right? I don't know what I, what I want to be when I grow up and I don't know what I'm looking for in classes that resonate with me and my personality and all that kind of stuff. And yet what I see is some recommendations coming from the university saying, you know what, Chris, you should go into computer science or whatever. Now, is that a true basis on my personality type and my ability to be successful? Or is it on the bias that the, that the, that the university needs to put butts in seats for computer science? Right? I, the between very, the yeah, very, yeah, very good what? question. Actually, um, uh, we have been working with universities quite a bit, right? And actually, you might be surprised to your or to your to the opposite that you said. Universities actually really want students can get you into the program who are the best fit, who will be the best program will be the best fit for the students. You know why? Because I remember I spoke with the dean of the university business school, right? It's in our local university business school. So he was saying that it is uh, the tools like GEG would be so useful, not just for students, even for the university to better manage their resources, right? So thinking about this one, students, uh, especially younger age, they don't know what they are, what's be, what would be great for them, right? So they didn't have a, uh, maybe the privilege, didn't have the, uh, I would say you cannot, not every student can afford a student advisor, personal advisor, right? So they get you into a university program by accident, by just hearing other people say, I went to this university with this dean. Then I, I, I gave a talk. I said, could you tell me which major you are in? 80% of people raised their hand saying they're in accounting. Then I asked, do you love accounting? And why did you get into accounting? They said, oh, because my uncle said so. Problem is this. 
Then accounting classes are completely full. The students who couldn't take the classes have to take six years versus four years. But some of the students are brilliant for being a marketing student or being an entrepreneur program.、Mm-hmm. They do not. They didn't know, right?、Mm-hmm. And the university was scrambling to say we have to go hire more accounting faculty members.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, hey,、uh, maybe I'm、uh, because I I was born in China. I grew up in China. I I did have this influence on my Chinese、uh, philosophy or maybe culture. We believe that everybody is born with the gift, right? Not everybody needs to be a computer scientist. Not everybody needs to be accountant. There's so many abilities. They have unique、right. abilities. Yeah. So you, you're identifying key, those unique abilities through these cycles. The, right. To have the best match. Right. So that's、yeah. that's a university one. Which, to my surprise, said, "Oh, maybe everybody should go、right. to computer science because they make most money." No,、right. no, no. Universities are very, I would say, prudent. Are very wise、mm-hmm. to see that. They、right. just want students to be successful. Exactly. I think you know this is this is where we get into you know the the ethics behind you know these types of recommendation engines that are actually critical and where transparency you know drives accountability. I, I think Chris, I really love what you just said. Transparency really drives the、uh, uh, responsibility as well, right?、Mm-hmm. We I often say this:、uh, with the great power comes with the great、uh, responsibility. And、uh, our AI now has this power, and we want、uh, it be used in a very responsible way. Right. Let me ask you this: What have the lessons learned been from your startup? So you you started up, you know, not necessarily knowing exactly what you wanted. What's what's that evolution been like? I have to say, one lesson, only one lesson, probably for us, for every entrepreneur, you really, really have to build a product that can help people. I'm going to use Chris's word. Achieve achieve their outcomes, not your outcomes, right? Just a very simple story to you. So when we created the GG at the very first time, we wanted to GG to be an interviewer because in this case, when you interview, let's say candidates, interview students, you can help them assess their fitness, assess their capability, and that their characteristics, right? But、uh, first of all, it's not we have to create the interviewer for every. Person who wants to try have to customize it. Second of all, there's no results can be easily visualized. The view they have to download the whole big、uh, spreadsheet. So our we used to be so confident to say, so what? Sorry, monkey gave you that one, and the quadrix gave you that one. Why should we take energy to go into create the end-to-end solution? Right? You can see the. Results. You can see the magical quadrant of the people where the fit, where the risk is. You know what? I had a very, very honest feedback to me from my dear friend, the same Michelle. You know, your tool sounds very interesting, sounds very useful, but in the current state, it doesn't help me a lot. Doesn't help me at all. It just adds burden to my work because I have to. Ask you to customize the question if I don't like the question. I have to you customize the AI if I don't like what the AI response it is. Then I have to analyze the free text responses from all these people. It just adds more burden to me. Why? Why should I use your product? So that's really I would say, wake us up. You have to build something. You can't be say eighty percent their way.、It、has to be hundred percent. Right, so I never figured out because I was reading before I became entrepreneur. Because of course we're we're geeks, right? We're scientists. We always kind of read the, 
try to read from a reading to, to learn. And there's a lean startup, right? I remember I said it is MVP. Do it if it's not quite work and do it. You know, at least from our experience, something not quite work, nobody wants it. <laughs> right. Not only, even it's free. Nobody wants to try because it's wasting their time. Yep. Right. So let me, let me ask you this on that thread. And this is going to be near and dear to you. Um, to Seth's, you know, heart and passion is my reason for existence. To, what's that? My reason for existence. Reason, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, your other one and only someone. Um, when you when you get into this with organizations, Michelle, mm-hmm. what you know, what does it look like? You know, centered around because you know, and I'll, I'll preface the question quickly. Most organizations don't even uh, we either don't know the data they have or they have a subset of data that they want to utilize and, um, and, or they think they have what they want to base things on, but they, you know, that it's not, in, you know, it's not inclusive. Mm-hmm. So how do you work on data governance and discovery and taxonomy? What does that look like when you guys walk, you know, go and work with an organization? So uh, actually this is a very good question, right? Uh, uh, so for example, you're right. Uh, when we're working with universities or even uh, uh, HR department, uh, they often ask, they often say it is, we have this data, we have this data, and we always go try to say what kind of a data is available. So for example, even the FAQ data, right? So just, I just use the simplest example. If you look at the FAQ data, sometimes FAQ, the answer is very, very long, right? Because that's made for the website consumption. So you can read it. But you just kind of completely move it to the chat, people will be very, very annoyed because it's such a long one, have to scroll so much. Remember the chat window is so small, normally on your little corner. So so we always kind of ask it is uh, first one to figure out what content is available. Second one, it's the format of the content, right? So uh, recently um, uh, we have been actually uh, uh, in our team, we've been discussing about the, from a content point of view, if you have the content, uh, how can you best present it? Basically, it's a form and a content, right? So maybe tool like a GPT, uh, a chat GPT already gives you that kind of a content, but you have to decide how to best present it in the context. So there's a kind of a multiple, uh, I would say multi-step process. But mm-hmm. Often people probably are unaware or don't realize there's a lot of work need to be put in place for that, right? Right. The knowledge sources uh, need some degree of curation, at least. I still am coming across vendors that say, you know, our AI does it all. Our AI, you know, no. <laughs> magically. I know. And it and it's it's like, seriously, guys, come on. You know, you, you know and uh, it's frustrating. But, but talk a little bit about general language models, such as uh, GPT-3, and then chat uh, GPT. I have not investigated chat GPT. I've heard interesting things about it, but I'm also seeing, you know, I think the chat, um, uh, uh, the chat space is getting very interesting from the perspective of misconceptions. I just read an article how chat is going to help with drug discovery. It's like chat is a channel, right? How are you talking about drug discovery just in terms of a channel? It's very interesting. But but the idea of people saying, well, now we have uh, GPT-3 or we have chat uh, GPT, 
how is that impacting you? I look at it as a generalized language model is going to be okay for common tasks, but you're still going to need a specific model for terminology and an industry and an organization. So first of all, talk talk to, for people maybe it's less familiar, talk about GPT-3 and then talk, talk about chat GPT. So GPT-3, it is uh, a large language model, right? So what happened it is uh, it, uh, oh, it gets basically... I, lot of training data, if you will, right? And from the training data, it tries to synthesize, generates different types of answers. I think that right now, the chat GPT is still oh, built on top of the GPT-3. It just has the interface for you to access the information that is already kind of uh, be trained on or be synthesized, right, from the underlying GPT-3 model. So recently, I have been actually uh, interacting with the chat GPT. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'm very impressed by some of the capabilities, right? So for example, uh, yesterday, I was trying one of the queries. I would say, uh, persuade a person who is very family-oriented to quit smoking. I did the comparison. I also persuade a person who is very self-sufficient, independent, to quit smoking. So the synthesis of the two persuasive, if you will, statements are very different, right? They put on a, but uh, hey, then people said, then uh, then chat GPT already did all of this one. Why would companies like GG still exist? But mm. uh, here, what I said, I put into the query to say family-oriented person. I put in a query to say self-sufficient independent person. Where does such knowledge will come from? Mm -hmm. How did you know the person is one? So like you said, Sass, the first one is uh, in order to run chat GPT in a reasonable way, you need context. Mm -hmm. You need parameters. So the, in, the conversations like the GG has is to gather that context to help. And also that, uh, as you said, as, as I mentioned earlier, the presentation that you, you can't just directly use the in conversation, you still have to edit it a little bit. But it helps the conversation designer, helps whoever uh, manage the conversation, really saves a tremendous amount of time is number one, right? And the second part of it is uh, you still need the context, the, like you said, the task context. So for example, I asked something to say, please compare, because recently I've been doing a lot of gardening, please compare a David, in, a David Austin Rose's Golden Celebration versus Teasing Georgia. It has no idea what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. You just said it is, uh, I don't know anything about plants. Of course, I know that you have been working with, you're doing a lot of consultant with knowledge engineering with enterprises. So it has to be proprietary right. data. You have to train your proprietary, proprietary models mm -hmm. as well. So those things, uh, which means it is, uh, I would say, uh, chat GPT really gives you a glimpse what future could hold. But there's mm -hmm. still a lot of work, a uh, lot of training still needs to be done by the specific entities, specific uh, organization, and by companies like us to provide that kind of a context. So you think there'll still be a future for knowledge management and knowledge engineering? Absolutely. Actually, we'll make the, we'll make the line of the work you do, knowledge management, even more important. Right. Because no. you would instruct, you would guide the mm -hmm. tools like a GPT-3 to be much more targeted, right. to be much more accurate. Right, right. 
No, those are great. Those are great right. points. So that's the application. People talk about the uh, proprietary models and also application mm -hmm. layer, right? Yes. When you go to application layer in terms of like, for example, like a financial, like a finance, yes. right? Versus healthcare, the wording, the type of presentation are completely different. General mm -hmm. model doesn't know that context. Exactly. You have to put the context exactly. into it, but you yeah. can leverage what you can do, right? So let's talk about uh, the coming disruption. We know these models are getting better. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, we're automating more things that humans do. There will okay. be disruption in the marketplace by AI. What do you think, um, first of all, what new jobs will be created to support cognitive AI? Mm -hmm. And then how will AI assistance help with job dis disruption? I would say the type of job, new job would be, you know, that we have many main domain experts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, for example, uh, domain experts who knows about the marketing, who knows about recruitment, who knows about the sales. Those mm -hmm. people will be supercharged by mm -hmm. what I call it, the current AI. Like mm -hmm. the uh, computational psychology, what the is doing, like a chat GPT-1, to supercharge them so that uh, they can actually do their job maybe 100 times, 1,000 times faster and better. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were the brain. So, for example, like an example, like I said today, right? And uh, you want to, for example, if you are the head of the smoking program, somehow like that, I, they want to devise a strategy. They want to design, devise what I call the business rules. Mm -hmm. But uh, the execution would be AI assistance. So almost right. like you, everybody could have an army of AI assistants. Right. So in the GG's ambition, it is that we want to become the platform, the manufacturer of any AI beans. So I don't call it AI assistant anymore. We call it AI beans. You can come in to create your own custom AI beans, right? Either be your companion, could be your girlfriend, could be your boyfriend, and it could be your just friend, could be your assistant as well, right? So well, that's the one know, we want. It's interesting because I'm starting to see this, um, you know, the notion of a digital assistant, but in the form of, like you said, an EA. Mm -hmm. And or, you know, like the application is really, really rich, especially amongst like small to medium businesses that need, you know, that, that need to have the ability to have an EA type yeah. of perspective, but don't can't afford it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. But mm -hmm. you could definitely attach a text based assistant and a voice based assistant into the same conversational structure and then still have the ability to you know, to take action, to, um, you know, to automate, you know, specific tasks and things like that, that, you know, are very generic and germane to, let's say, you know, having, you know, somebody that can, like an assistant that can actually really help them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm starting to see those types of things happening, you know, a lot more frequently than we have in the past, but I'd love to get an idea too, like, um, you know, how, what you guys are doing is, is ahead of the curve from everything else. What does that look like? Don't I mean don't don't share your IP, right? But but what are the things that that you know set you guys apart? So you are absolutely right. Those uh, assistant, digital assistant, AI assistant, right, can help small, medium businesses. So just thinking about it, when those businesses hire a human assistant, what the requirements are? Of course, understanding English is a must. Otherwise, this person cannot interact with the customers or partners, anybody, right? But uh, it's not sufficient, correct? 
they want yeah. this person to be also has a certain level of what we call the social emotional quotient to be able to know how to work with people, how to interact with people, especially when they don't have the knowledge, right? Yeah. That's what Gigi sets it apart from the rest of them is our goal is to teach the AI assistant or digital assistants, what we call the advanced human skills, hmm. active listening, and even they don't know how to answer the question, but do it in a very uh, kind of uh, with the social emotional, actually, uh, uh, how do you say statements, right? Mm. Another one, it is reading between the lines, mm. really understand what they want, what they're like, right? Mm. Once you do that, thinking about it, uh, and um, uh, Chris and Seth, that you have your own digital AI assistant, uh, and uh, let's say I'm reaching out to you. It doesn't know who I am yet, but then after I converse with them, I want to tell you guys to say, you know, I today I spoke with Michelle, Michelle is a very um, uh, enthusiastic, a very open-minded person about the technology. And uh, she wants to talk to you guys. Mm. Then you can decide, is this the right fit for your consulting or not, right? So that's how your AI assistant uh, can really take a step further from those mundane, I call it uh, transactional operations. Mm -hmm. Okay, take a message, make appointment. Yes, mm -hmm. it needs to do that. But more to that, it is, for example, if you guys are away, if I ask it is, so tell me more about the status operation. What kind of a business is he likes to do it? What, what kind of thing? Then it like, gives me an idea whether this is something I want to continue engage with, right? So that's what to really get to the, that's why we also talk about it is this empathetic automation of a high touch services, mm -hmm. which aren't possible and before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love the, the, the personal assistant type of scenario because now what we're talking about is it understanding, you know, me at scale, right? Or understanding the single, the singular at scale. Yeah, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. exactly. And, and so part of that too is, you know, there was use cases that, that I wanted to actually work on, which I'm glad you're solving now where you, you know, a, a, a new person that's interacting with a giant organization like a, like a new um, an employer or a new university or something like that needs that personal assistant mm -hmm. to do anything from like, hey, uh, you know, like maybe it's on my mobile. Tell me where this class is and then boom, you get directions. Mm -hmm. Or tell me what books I need to order or when my bills are due or, you know, things like tell me how to not, you know, gain the freshman 15, you know, in terms of weight, what can I do, you know, and it's that, that interaction, you know, at scale, but it understanding, you know, who me, who I am, what my needs are. Yeah. And, you know, the, in, in, and also so. encourage you to stay on course, right? Like today I was trying to also yeah. do that. You yeah. see it is, uh, um, one of the things is universities and uh, any academic programs are worried about it is, especially from an online learning uh, form. And it's very it's a lonely journey, right? People learn at their home. I know some people mm -hmm. have, a, most of people have a part-time or full-time job. Stay on course, adhere to the learning process. It's a tremendous challenge, right? Mm -hmm. With so many distractions. So uh, I think the assistant, like this, we call the learning companion or learning body, really right. not just to help you on the mundane operational, transactional or, um, items, but really actually be your, I would say, 
emotional partner too, right? right? right. Encourage right. you. To, it's beauty that knows you, that's, right? That's and uh, hey, that's encourage that's you to stay on course. Absolutely. Well, listen, we've come to the end of our time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Michelle. Uh, I've really enjoyed it and fascinating, fascinating topics and really uh, looking forward to following more of what uh, Juji is doing. Uh, so thank you again. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, perhaps having you back on so that we can continue this conversation. But this has been fabulous. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Chris, for the great questions. And thank you for having me. Thanks, Michelle. It was our pleasure and look forward to uh, working with you in the future. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Early AI Podcast with your hosts, Seth Early and Chris Featherstone. We hope you enjoyed the program and took away some ideas that you can start to implement in your organization right now. If you're stuck and need help, check out www.early.com for information about early information science consulting services. And of course, check the show notes for links to any resources we mentioned today. That's all for now. See you next time.